Hi, I'm Laura, and this is The Laura Flanders Show, a TV and radio program that shines a light on the solutions of tomorrow today. We report on the people and movements driving systemic change from the worlds of politics, arts, and entrepreneurship. Welcome. Hours ago, minutes ago, these men were behind barbed wire, locked in the strongest cage that man could devise. These men plotted. These men dared. These men lived. The Great Escape. That's the trailer from a World War II movie from 1963. But it's not for nothing that labor organizer Socket Sony borrowed the title of that classic for his book. Hundreds of men facing staggering odds, escaping captivity together thanks to a delicately laid plan. That's the plot of the movie. It's also the story Socket Sony tells about 500 Indian-born men exploited to work as welders and pipe fitters on oil rigs off the U.S. Gulf Coast after Hurricane Katrina. How did they get there? How did they escape? Sakatsoni's book, The Great Escape, a true story of forced labor and immigrant dreams in America, tells the tale of one of the largest human trafficking schemes in modern American history, and how the traffickers were ultimately brought to account. I first met Socket Sony when he was the co-founder of the New Orleans Workers' Center for Racial Justice in those post-Katrina years. He went on to create the National Guest Worker Alliance. Today, he's the founder and director of Resilience Force, a project that grew directly out of his experience working with disaster recovery workers. Sony's been hailed as an architect of the next labor movement and featured in The New Yorker. He's also, it turns out, a would-be theater director, and a super thriller writer. The book is truly gripping. Socket, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Laura. So great to be back in touch. Thanks for having me on. It's quite the thriller, courtroom drama, the defendant's attorney having a stroke right there in the middle. There's also a hunger strike, a march, and a whole lot of love stories. Um, you really communicate your caring for the guys that you worked with in this case. Is there one of them you want to sort of describe for us, introduce us to? Absolutely. One of the men who wound up becoming a leader in the campaign and a protagonist, a central character in the book, uh, is Ebi Raju. Ebi was a young man from Kerala who arrived on an American promise. Um, recruiters arrived in India and sold him a dream. They told him that there would be a green card for him in the United States uh, and a good job. And then, like the others, when he got to the U.S., um, he arrived not on green cards, but on a temporary visa. Now, Ebi is somebody who was from Kerala. He um, His first job in India was to work a dollar a day fixing roofs. Um, he then went on to become a migrant worker in Bahrain. Um, and right at the point where the American recruiters arrived in India, his family really needed money. His dad had retired. Ebi was trying to figure out how to pay for the household. So when a recruiter said that for $20,000, Ebi would come to America with a good job and stay on a green card, that sounded really good, even though $20,000 was you know, a generation of savings. 
Ebi had to uh, convince his family to sell their ancestral home. Um, they had to borrow money at high interest loans from uh, loan sharks. Um, but when Ebi arrived, he found not an American dream, but an American nightmare. He uh, found himself like everyone else uh, in atrocious conditions. Um, the men who arrived from India lived 24 to a trailer um, in a facility that the company itself called a man camp. Uh, it was a set of trailers built above a toxic dump. They were fed frozen rice and moldy bread. Um, but Ebi's greatest indignity was one I found out about only when I got to know him a lot closer. It was the day he was 20 feet up doing dangerous welding work on an elevated platform. Um, and he got a phone call. He picked up and it was his wife. He'd just been married and his wife, Vinci, was going into surgery. Um, she was pregnant. And not only could he not be with her, but he wouldn't even get to see the son that she had that day, the son that was born to them that day in person for under another three years. And that was the day that later on, Ebi recounted the day he broke, the day that represented the greatest offense in the labor camp um, and the day that made him join the campaign. When did you first hear from these workers? I first got uh, a mysterious midnight phone call um, on my birthday in 2006. It was a mysterious caller um, who was too scared to give me his name, but I could tell from the way he spoke and especially from the way he said my name that he was from India. Now I got phone calls all the time from laborers around the Gulf Coast, but most of them were either African-Americans or white workers, local workers from the Gulf Coast, or they were Latino um, immigrants. And I wondered to myself, what on earth was an Indian man doing in the ruins of the post-Katrina Mississippi Gulf Coast? What I discovered was that he was one of 500 Indian laborers who had been lured to the US on, on the promises of good work and green cards. How did you work with them to get them to become the activists that they were? Or were they at a kind of latent level activists? I mean, they'd reached out to you, which was quite something, but they were in a very perilous position. My first meeting with them was a disaster. You know, um, in, during that mysterious phone call, um, the man who wanted help was too scared to talk to me, but he told me to meet him clandestinely at a place he called, in his particular English, um, the Secret Catholic Church. I went on a hunt, and it turned out to be the Sacred Heart Catholic Church uh, in Pascagoula, Mississippi, a small town, small shipyard town. I went in to meet with these workers, opened the door expecting three workers, and there were a hundred. There was one man who was deep in the audience who then reached out to me, uh, a man named Rajan. And this is the, the one I ended up partnering with, one of these workers. Um, Rajan was the kind of partner a labor leader dreams of. He taught me the inner workings of the camp. Uh, he taught me the pressures on these men. He also taught me, Laura, how to cook. And over the course of months and meals, we orchestrated this escape out of a heist movie. The men that you work with are the center of the story and, and your relationship with them, their relationship with each other, with their families. 
zoom out, though, and you have this structure of interconnected bad guys, if you like, um, describe, if you would, the relationship between the recruiters, the corporation, and ultimately, I hope I'm not letting too much out of the bag here, um, U.S. authorities. The workers arrived in the United States to build oil rigs for a large Gulf Coast oil rig builder. Um, this company was private equity owned and it was, uh, you know, uh, like a juggernaut. There were contractor contracts after contracts, a long pipeline. And so this company was really um, receiving the most skilled workers in the world uh, through this trafficking scheme at a fraction of the cost of U.S. workers. We can name names. I and mean, we were talking about Signal International. There was a lawsuit. Talking about Signal International. That's right. Signal International, giant, um, sprawling and growing um, behemoth of an oil rig builder. But the way the workers got there is a very fascinating story. At the center of it is um, an uh, immigration attorney in New Orleans named Malvern Burnett. And in the book, I say Malvern Burnett always thought of himself as the immigrant's best friend. He was the last person you'd expect to find in federal court denying his role in one of the largest human trafficking schemes in modern US history. Um, so that is the strange part of the story, an immigrant's best friend winding up at the center of a forced labor ring. So after Hurricane Katrina, um, Malvern Burnett found himself in a personal financial crisis. Um, and he entered into this scheme to provide these workers to the company and made millions of dollars in the process. It was a Faustian bargain. None of this would have been possible if there hadn't also been laws permitting immigrants to be brought into this country on special visas. The whole thing was propped up by that opening in the legal system. Um, Talk a bit about that, because I do want to emphasize that while there are individual heroes here, there's also some structural problems that, in fact, your Resilience Force project has set up to address. But but let's go back to where did government come in and the legal structure and our immigration laws? Well, um, you know, Malvern Burnett was an expert on the United States' intricate and um, largely very difficult to understand uh, immigration system. So when um, the company, Signal International, said, look, we need workers for years. How can you, how fast can you get us a workforce um, that can, you know, come from India, work for us and, and build oil rigs for years? Malvern knew that the fastest way to get these workers uh, was not on green cards. That That's nearly an impossibility, uh, but on temporary short-term visas. These are uh, visas that are meant to solve a temporary labor need. Um, of course, the company's labor need was not temporary, um, and the workers were told they were coming on green cards. But in fact, they were brought by this recruiting trio on something called an H-2B visa, a temporary short-term visa that allows workers to come in uh, work for some months at a time, uh, but after the work was done, uh, they would need to go back home to India. That's not what the workers were expecting, but that's what they were, um, you know, that's what they were brought on. Uh, the other government actor here um, was uh, an even stranger one, the ICE agent, and the whole 
uh, system of immigration enforcement helped keep these workers in forced labor. Um, without giving too much away, um, a person right at the center of the scheme uh, is an ICE agent, an immigration cop called Alvin Ladner. Um, this ICE agent had his own personal motivations for surveilling and hunting down and attempting to jail and deport the men. This is The Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. My guest is labor organizer and now author, Saket Sony. He's the founder and director of Resilience Force, where his work centers on the intersections of race, migrant rights, and climate change. In his recent book, The Great Escape, a true story of forced labor and immigrant dreams in America, released just now by Algonquin, he exposes one of the largest human trafficking schemes in modern American history. Next, we'll hear Saka's story, the personal one, what brought him to the U.S., his aspirations to be a theater director, and what led him into community organizing. Head to our archives at lauraflanders.org to see Socket in action and the men on their march with their I am a man signs. Socket was last on the program back in 2013, speaking on disaster collectivism, an antidote, as he saw it, to disaster capitalism and community organizing informed by his work in New Orleans after Katrina. The show airs on community radio and public television stations across the country. And as a free podcast, you can find all the information at lauraflanders.org. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter so that we can stay in touch with you and send you, among other things, the full uncut version of today's show, which especially this week you won't want to miss. Socket is such a rich storyteller. Stay tuned as my conversation continues with him. But first, his Nicodemus and PJT's remix of Ain't My Fault by Gulf Aid All-Stars from the Lost and Found in the Frying Pan Collection, released by Turntables on the Hudson. Scientists estimate uncaptured oil is spewing out between 35,000 and 60,000 barrels a day. The race is on to determine the slip's impact on the region's wildlife. British Petroleum has just announced that its top kill method has failed. We don't have the technology. We don't have the knowledge. Uh, water, water don't mix. Petroleum don't go good for no fish. Oh, it ain't my fault. For BP, big pimp and big problem, bad present. Billionaire pirate born on point first person. Oh, 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 it ain't my fault. Say, man. Who pushed marsh backs where the hurricane shelter in the garden at? Oh, it ain't my fault. Shit, from the Gulf of Mexico to the broke left wall. Something gone wrong and somebody fault. Oh, 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 it ain't my fault. I learned in this a little bit about you. You tell some of your own story um, that I certainly didn't know, including that you had once wanted to be a theater director. My parents were probably the only ones in the history of India to let their son go to America for a theater degree. But that's what I was doing when, um, when I missed an immigration deadline of my own. Um, I became undocumented and I really thought nothing of it. I, I thought it was um, only a little more serious than an unreturned library book. But then 9-11 happened, and like many, many immigrants in the United States, I lost my foothold in America. That's what um, turned me from uh, theater to community organizing. I can't help thinking that you brought some of your kind of theater uh, skills, talents, instincts to the organizing. Um, 
I'm thinking particularly of the scene where you win over the guy who is perhaps the most reluctant, who's acting sort of as a snitch, as an information gatherer for the company at one of the most important meetings that you have with the organizers. At a key moment in the book, um, the company finds out that something's afoot, that there are uh, activists among the workers, people who are seeking out the advice of an outside character, me, uh, that we're holding secret meetings. Um, and the company actually attempted to deport my leaders in the labor camp. The reason they did that was because of a few snitches they had among the workforce. What I had to do was convince those informants, the workers who were colluding with the company, um, you know, to, to really um, to really join me, to, to, to look at the company, understand that it was all lies in the first place. There were never any green cards and, and join me. Um, and, and the key character that I had to convince um, was a young man who was also from North India and in fact, also from Delhi, from the same city as me. Um, when I was imagining what he looked like, I expected, you know, some kind of bully. In fact, this was a very handsome um, Bollywood star looking son of a police officer uh, named Hemant. He was, um, you know, really very striking, really charismatic. Um, and it was easy to see why people followed him. He was, um, he led a whole crew of workers in the labor camp, all from North India. And it was really important for me uh, to bring the North Indians on board um, so that you know, everybody would join the campaign. We're talking about the book, The Great Escape, but also the story of how 500 Indian-born workers managed to break out of captivity-like conditions in working camps and man camps in Mississippi and in Texas in order to assert their rights and ultimately did bring uh, the traffickers to account. There was a $14 million settlement in one group of cases, $20 million in another. It's an extraordinary story. I can't help feeling it's like one of the biggest, most important labor stories most people have never heard of. Looking back on it now, Socket, um, I see so much here that is important. And I, I also wonder how much has or hasn't changed. On the one hand, the relationship between ICE, our immigration authorities, our laws, and the corporations that benefit off this kind of labor, has anything changed? Secondly, on the side of the organizers, you are bringing together civil rights organizers with activists coming from India. You're referring, before the end of the book, to the British imperial experience and their importation of coolies to take the place of formerly enslaved Africans after abolition. You have a very global scope, um, you, and yet we are in a country that organizes typically quite parochially um, and perhaps was doing that at that time. Where are we today, do you think, both on the sort of good guy's side and on the opponent's side? What's changed? Well, I'll start with what's changed for the man at the center of the book. Ebi um, Raju, the worker I talked about, who um, was um, on that platform 20 foot feet in the air when his son was born 10,000 miles away. At the end of the book, um, there's this beautiful scene of Ebi um, at the Atlanta airport and his wife, Bincy, holding uh, their now three-year-old son coming up the escalator and the embrace, they reunite, they meet for the first time, Ebi hugs his son um, and they start their American lives. And actually um, uh, just a few months ago, 
uh, Ebby sent me a picture of himself and Vinci as first-time voters, not just in the U.S., but as first-time voters in any country uh, in Houston um, during the last U.S. midterms. So these men are now in America. They're fully Americans. They're recognized as such. Uh, they're going to their citizenship ceremonies. These workers in this book, though I didn't know it at the time, were the first uh, of a growing workforce that I call the resilience workforce, uh, workers who rebuild after hurricanes, floods, fires, and other disasters. Um, and as climate change has proceeded, as disasters have, got, have become more frequent and more destructive, this workforce has grown and it's largely still immigrant and largely undocumented and very vulnerable. Um, and just like these workers in this book, um, newer immigrants who come into this workforce follow uh, hurricanes, floods, and fires. They follow disasters and I follow them with my team and we protect them. I've come to see them as America's white blood cells. There's, they're right at the center of rebuilding and repair and healing. They're best shot we have for people coming home, but they're still, um, you know, unrecognized and, um, and uh, vulnerable to exploitation and abuse. One of the hopes that I have um, for this book is that it'll spur more people to say, well, how can I help? How can I uh, make sure that people like that have the dignity they deserve. What needs to change? I mean, on a purely self-interested level, you've got an aging U.S. population, a declining now Chinese population. You've got the climate crises you just mentioned. And we've just seen what happens when you have the kind of dislocation to the global economy um, that we're still reeling from on the level of markets and also uh, migration. Uh, shortage of workers. People are constantly complaining about what needs to change purely for the survival of the U.S. economy, do you think, when it comes to the more mobile um, movement of global labor? Well, what I see in my work every day uh, is exactly the kinds of solutions that I think are needed at a global level or at a national level. In small towns and, and large cities across America, after a flood or a fire or a hurricane, um, immigrant workers roll in, right? And these are often towns where the number one priority of the local population and the local political leadership before the hurricane was building a wall to keep immigrants out. Places like Florida, where Hurricane Ian hit um, just months ago. Um, weeks before the hurricane, DeSantis had shipped migrants to Martha's Vineyard and Kamala Harris's house in Washington. And after the hurricane, DeSantis's constituents, those very people who cheered him on, now needed those migrants back to rebuild their homes and schools and cities after a massive hurricane. And you know what? They're working together now. I see friendships form between the US-born and the immigrant workers. I, I see the gratitude of local mayors, mayors who are uh, deeply conservative and cheering on deportations suddenly turn and they all they have is gratitude for the immigrant workers. I think that's what they that's what we need at a national level is um, systems of repair and rebuilding, not just an immigration system, but systems of repair and rebuilding this country that are focused on solving problems 
and that band people together to solve those problems. And out of that problem solving also comes new friendships that are bases for uh, our new resilience, the resilience we need for the, the future we, we need, you know, we need to face. And the people on that resilience force, uh, what rights do they have? What protections? Well, right now they have very little. Right now they have only what we can win for them. Um, these workers wake up in their cars um, or they sleep and wake up under their cars uh, on Home Depot parking lots. They wash themselves with bottled water. Um, and then before dawn, they get to work rebuilding homes and roofs and schools and cities. Um, they often fall off those roofs. Um, they return home often without pay. When they come forward and push uh, to be paid by contractors who owe them, um, you know, they have to risk punishment. Um, contractors often call the police or threaten to call immigration. That's the system um, we have now. That's the world as it is. Uh, but it's not the world that we want, and it's not the world we need to have. In, in, in reality, we need these workers. We need them to be safe and skilled and secure. Um, we also don't have enough of them. What we're really trying to do at Resilience Force is build this million-strong, massive, skilled workforce we need to rebuild American cities, but also to build new fabric, new social fabric in America. Our guest is Sakit Soni. He's the author of The Great Escape, a true story of forced labor and immigrant dreams in America. It's just out. We'll have a link at our website. Sakit, thank you so much for coming back on the program and congratulations on a fantastic story brilliantly told. Thanks, Laura. Socket Sony is a great storyteller, and he tells many more stories about the workers and the settlement they ultimately reached with Signal International in the full uncut version of today's conversation, which you can get through a subscription to our podcast. At the end of the day, the workers do win in court, and Signal International has to pay. The company declares bankruptcy, and you could say that the story ends there. But does it? As I was hearing Socket talk about Ebby, the trafficked worker, at the top of that damaged rig, hearing about the birth of his son miles away, I'm reading about the extraordinary windfall profits being reported by ExxonMobil and Chevron and the world's biggest oil companies. $55.7 billion for ExxonMobil, Chevron not far behind. Is the problem a few criminally-minded, exploitative people in this industry or the entire political economy of oil? an economy that rests on exploitation and extraction and generates private profits for its shareholders while walking away from the damage to public lands and soil. Is the problem a few people or a political economy? And if it's the latter, how do we shift it? We'll continue to look at both the people problem and the political economy problem here on The Laura Flanders Show, and I hope you'll join me. So check out the full conversation by subscribing to our podcast and come back here next time. I look forward to our next conversation.
For more information on this week's show, check out our show notes posted at patreon.com forward slash the LF show. That's where you'll find links to related articles and past episodes from our archives to explore and an invitation to watch the premiere of each week's show on our YouTube channel and chat live in real time with me, Laura Flanders, Sundays at 11.30 a.m. Eastern. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button for our YouTube channel if you haven't, and subscribe to that podcast. And if you are a subscriber via Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to write a review and rate the show. It helps to spread the word. In times like these, when social media platforms are reducing the reach of independent media like ours, the act of subscribing and engaging and reviewing with likes and comments is even more important than ever. Tip the algorithms our way. We are up against it. Meanwhile, my crew and I always love to hear from you. We're member-supported, and that means interdependent media. It's a beautiful thing, but we do need you. We don't take money from government or corporations, so you're the fuel in our tank, and no one more so than our Patreon monthly members. Become a monthly sustaining member at patreon.com forward slash the LF show and join the crew that keep this show alive month after month. You'll get extras and all sorts of special gifts from us to thank you. But mostly, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're doing your bit. So how about it? We can only do it with your help. Thanks for listening. This show is produced by yours truly, Laura Flanders, along with Sabrina Artel, Nat Needham, David Newman, Rory O'Connor, Jeanette Hernandez, and Jeannie Hopper. Major funding for this program is provided by the Novo Park, Ellen Poss Family, Hisuku Wilson Foundations, the Schumann Media Center, Rising Fund at Tides, Kim Connor and Nick Groombridge, Jane Fonda, and listeners like you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for contributing. Thanks for your ideas. Stay kind. Stay curious. Until the next time, I'm Laura. <laughs>